Well, hey, everyone. Uh, I just want to say I'm really excited to be here with you today. Uh, I just want to address my, my North Church family at Deer Creek first. Um, I know I wasn't there uh, last Sunday. I was actually, me and my wife, Hope, and, and Charlie, we, we went away for a little getaway uh, to Dallas, Texas. And so whenever we do vacations, we still like to go on, go to church. And so we got to hang out with some of our friends at the Village Church. One of my best friends is on staff there. And so we got to hang out there and go to church and said, you know what, we're, we're here on a Sunday in Dallas, so we might as well go to like one of those local ball games. So uh, we decided to go see the Dallas Cowboys play, okay? Uh, and I, I have to show you, if, can I show you a picture? This is like the obligatory picture of my son. Look at him. Look at him. He's just cheering on his Cowboys. We're raising him up to be a Cowboys fan. If he ever cheers for the Redskins, he's dead to me. <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> so today we're talking, we're talking about communion. Uh, now, if you've ever wondered... Um, you know, why, why do we do communion the way we do communion at North Church? Or, 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 you know, kind of what do we believe about communion? I, I hope some of those questions will be answered uh, today in today's sermon. Uh, but, but I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure if I'll get to answer all those questions because I really want to focus on why we do communion, why we do communion. And so we're going to look at a passage of Scripture. Uh, you can actually go ahead and start turning there. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And... Uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of context, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church. Um, and, and if you've ever sat down and, and in like one setting read from, you know, all the way from 1 Corinthians, you know, from the very, very beginning to, to the very end, you may kind of pick up this tone of like harshness from the Apostle Paul. Like he speaks very sharply to the Corinthian church. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons why. One uh, is he's dealing with some unhealth and some dysfunction within the church. And, and I'll be honest with you, Paul does not pull any punches. Like he hits them hard with the truth. Uh, but the other reason that he is so harsh and, and very sharp with the church uh, is because Paul is actually the founding pastor of the church. Okay, so in, in a very real way, Paul is actually uh, the kind of like the spiritual father of this church. And so it, the only way I can kind of liken it to you is, is let's say you're going on vacation or you go for a long kind of trip uh, and your teenager at home uh, ends up like wrecking your house uh, and then just kind of cherry on top decides to wreck your car as well. Like however you'd feel, let's say like you hear about that and how you feel is, is you want to communicate to them right away, right? But you can't call them, you can't text them. All you could do is sit down and write a handwritten letter. Like, that's basically what Paul is doing. His house back in Corinth is in upheaval. He's writing this, this letter that's going to be read aloud to the whole church. Now, I'll be honest with you. Like, if you or I probably writing that letter to our teenager, our letter probably could not be read aloud at church. Right? If we're honest. And so this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church, dealing with some dysfunction. And in this particular chapter, he's dealing with the dysfunction around communion. So I'm going to ask all of us, if you can, just kind of stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word across all locations. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20 down, it says this, When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing it with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Now, that's Paul's what I want you to know. 
And, and the reason he's, he's dealing with this uh, is, and you've got to know a little bit about the context, is that, see, the, the Corinthian church, uh, you know, they would do Lord's Supper or communion, whatever we like to call it, right, where they break the bread and, and drink the cup. Uh, they would also include in this what they would call an agape feast or a love feast. And, and what that would be basically in today's world is the equivalent of like a church potluck. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever been part of a church potluck. Come on, God bless you. You did some good memories at church potlucks, okay? Now, basically everyone would bring something, right? And they would share what they had uh, with, with everyone at the table. Now, here's, here's what was happening in this church, though. Is it, you know, this is the first time you really have, like, wealthy people and poor people, people in the high class of society and people at the lowest class of society coming together in one room and sharing a meal and, and, and treating each other as if they're equals, and so what was happening is that some people who, who had resources, who had means, you know, they would be bringing their fried chicken, right? And they would bring it to the church. And they would think about Steve, right? Like Steve, the only thing he ever brings is styrofoam cups. And you know what? I can't eat styrofoam cups. That's not on my paleo diet. And so what they would say is, you know what? I'm, I'm going to, me and my family and my good friends, we're going to eat this fried chicken that I made. And Steve can just eat his cups, Right? And what the problem is that maybe for Steve, that's, cups might be the only thing he could afford to bring to the meal. Right? And so in a way, they're, they're practicing injustice. So this is what Paul goes on to say. He says, don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. Right, this is a church that has a lot of gifts and a lot of talents. And people walking in might praise this church, might give them some, you know, some, some uh, shout-outs for what they do. But Paul's saying, you know, I'm, I'm not going to celebrate for you for this. And then he says, verse 23, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself on the night when he was betrayed. The Lord Jesus took bread. He gave thanks to God for it, and he broke it into peace, said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I want you to notice what Paul is doing, right? He is saying, hey, I know you love like your agape feast, your church potlucks, and you love all this kind of fancy stuff, but let me bring you back to the simplicity of the bread. Let me bring you back to the simplicity of what this is all about. And so he takes us to the original context, Jesus breaking the bread, in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. See, what Paul is pointing out here is that is the communion, receiving the Lord's supper, is actually a participation in the gospel, the gospel message that God became man, he lived among us, and he died for our sins. When we partake in the Lord's Supper, we're actually participating in that. And you know, one of the things uh, that we do here at North Church is we practice open communion, meaning that you don't have to qualify or go through a church class in order to take communion here. Uh, because we want everyone who walks through these doors to be able to participate in the communion, right? To be able to participate in the gospel. Whether you fully understand it or not, that you're able to still receive the grace that comes through receiving it. Verse 27. So anyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Now that's a little complicated, and we're going to talk about what all that means here in a second. 
He says, that is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread and drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. This is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. So in this church, people are receiving communion in an unworthy manner. Like I said, we're gonna unpack that a little bit later. But in doing so, that they were actually getting sick. They were finding themselves weak and some people even died. And God wasn't doing this as a form of punishment in order to, to punish them for their sin. Rather, he was doing this as a way to bring them back into the fold, right? The way you would discipline a, your child, right? In order to show them your love and bring them back. Verse 31, but if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So, my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you're really hungry, look at your neighbor and say, you hungry, bro? Eat at home! Right? So you don't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the goodness of your word. I pray that you'd help us to, Lord, unpack this passage and understand it, Lord, and, and also live in such a way that we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, uh, here at North Church, uh, and, and maybe for you, uh, you grew up with different ways of doing communion, maybe a different tradition, um, maybe a different practice around communion. So I just want to kind of look at all the different ways we do it here. Um, and so... Uh, if you've noticed lately, one of the things we've been doing is what we call the dipping method. That's not the actual technical term for it. I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, but I just want to show you how it's done. So, you know, you get the bread, and then you, uh, for, if you've never done this, right, uh, you dip it into the, to the juice, but not all the way. You don't want to get your fingers in there, okay, because there's other people, right? And then, and then you dip it halfway, you eat it, right? That's, that's the dipping method, right? Or... Uh, if you don't like that, we also have um, the, what, what a good friend of mine calls this, the Jesus Lunchable. Okay? And, and if you don't have fingernails, man, you will have a tough day at church, you know, with this thing. But you got like your bread in one compartment, you got the juice on the other side. And sometimes when we leave this out for a while and we forget about it, it's like sitting in one of those little communion holes in your chairs. For too long, it kind of turns into wine, you know? And so we, we do it very, like a lot of different ways. Maybe you grew up a different life. For me, you know, I'll just come here. So uh, the way our pastor used to do when I was growing up uh, is he would take one of these loaves. Uh, and for those of you guys who don't know, this is a King's Hawaiian bread loaf, okay? Like this is, this is really good stuff, okay? In fact, does anybody want to try? No, I'm, I'm not going to share that. But, but he would take one of these and, and he would break it. And we, just the way our church did it, we had a guy's side and we had a girl's side. And so, you know, they would take half the bread to this side and half the bread to that side. And then we'd all line up you know, and then he would take the, the cup and he'd pour it into two cups, one side for the girls, one for the guys. And, and then we'd line up and, and, and one of the elders of the church would come and everybody drank from the same cup. And so what he would do is they would come and they would put the, the cup right up to your lip, right? You would sip and then they would wipe the cup, and then they would move to the next person, and then they'd, you know, you drink, wipe, move to the next person, drink, and then sometimes they forget to wipe, and then they move to the next person. <laughs> it got real, y'all. And I remember the first time I took 
to communion at my church because our church, we had to get baptized in order to, that was kind of our rite of passage to take communion. Uh, and I remember I was like the fourth or fifth person in line. And, and it was my turn to, to receive the cup. And I had this thought in my head. And it was this, man, I don't know if that person brushed their teeth this morning. Like, I don't feel comfortable drinking after them. And, and so I made this commitment in my heart that day that whenever we would have the Lord's Supper, right, whenever we'd have the table, the bread and the wine, what I would do is I would run to the front to be the first person in line. <laughs> and so I, I don't know what tradition you grew up under, like if it was as strange as mine, but, but what I want to look at today is, is why we receive communion. You know, I can say a lot about the different kinds of, you know, understandings or theology uh, under, uh, about communion. Like, you know, one, one that comes to mind is transubstantiation. Like, does it literally become the body and the blood in your mouth? Like, I, I could deal with that, but, but honestly, I feel like that's kind of missing the boat just a little bit. Because I think what Scripture would probably want us to look at more is why we receive, uh, why we receive the body and the blood of Jesus. So if you're taking notes, the first reason is this. We receive communion as a sign of commitment. As a sign of commitment. So uh, every gospel has an account of communion. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are a little bit different than John. Uh, and so they contain kind of those, those same two or three verses that describe how Jesus sat with the Passover, with his disciples, and so on and so forth. But, but John actually has it in a very different way. Uh, John presents... Uh, communion, not necessarily in the Passover story, but he actually gives, uh, puts the words of Jesus uh, early on uh, when he's talking about uh, how we, or why we receive communion. And so I want to look at that passage really quick. It's John chapter 6. And just to have a little bit of context, uh, about this point, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. And they're pretty excited. And so everyone goes home, they're, you know, they're full and satisfied. Jesus' and disciples get into a boat and they cross over to the next town over. They cross over a sea and get to the next side. All the people wake up the next day and they're like, hey, where's Jesus? Right? And so what they do is they, they grab all their people, all their family, and they get into these little boats. They all cross over to the next town over, over the sea, right? And they track down Jesus and say, Jesus, where did you leave us? Where did you go? We wanted to make you our king. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, you, you're not want to make me king because you love me or because you honor me. The real reason you want to make me king is because of the bread, right? Because of, of the bread that you ate. But, but let me tell you about something better. And Jesus starts speaking to them. Verse 51 says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my, watch this, flesh, is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus decides to clarify. This is what he says. Jesus says unto them, truly, truly, I said to you, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me and I in him. Now here's the thing. If you read that for the first time in your life at any point, and you weren't a little creeped out, 
Like I said, we need a different kind of ministry for you, Mr. Hannibal. Okay? Because if you're reading this for the first time, if you're Jesus' audience and you hear this for the first time, you're wondering, like, is this, is this Jesus or is this like the walking dead? Like, what? Am, what did I just hear? Like, that's what's going through it. It affected them so much so that all these 5,000 people that were all just wanting to follow after Jesus and make him king, all of them decide to leave them right there. They all leave. And I wonder if, like, the disciples, if, like, if, if Peter was, like, in the bathroom when most of this message is going on, then he finally, like, walks in. He's like, hey, Andrew, where's Jesus at in his sermon? And Andrew's like, oh, he just got to the part about eating flesh and drinking blood. And Peter's like, oh, not that time. You know, like, like they, the disciples were so affected that a lot of, in fact, most of Jesus' disciples end up leaving him, and the only people that are left are the 12. So if you ever wondered how we got 12, there you go. So the reason, though, that Jesus is asking them to do this, to to eat of his flesh, to drink his blood, is is he's saying, listen, you're coming after me really just for what you can get. And while I'm okay providing for you and being uh, there for you in that way, that's not my primary goal, right? I want to know that you're following me no matter what it costs you. And it cost the early church. It was a shocking thing. In fact, people thought in the early church that, that people were, they were, they were cannibals because they talked so much about eating flesh and drinking blood. Like it cost them something. They weren't very popular. But Jesus saying, hey, are you following me because it's popular, because it's the easy thing to do? Because, hey, if I come to church enough, you know, then I'll please my, uh, my wife or my husband will be happy with me or, or my kids may grow up to be better people. Or, or, you know, if I come to church, then maybe I'll make some friends that will lead to some business prospects and, and I'll make some good connections here. Or, or maybe if I come to church, then I'll feel better about myself. Is, is that why you're coming to church or, or, or is it because it costs you something? Because you have a true commitment to it. And that's what Jesus is saying, is do you, do you really have a commitment to me? He's asking for a sign of commitment. And this isn't odd, you know, like even in our society today, we have signs of commitment. Right? But, but communion is just one of those that we do it so often, we do it every time we come to church, it kind of, kind of loses its meaning at times, right? We just, just kind of the regular thing we do at church. But like if you look at it in our society, we have this ring that we wear. And I wonder who was that first person that was like, hey, honey, I want you to put this ring around your finger. That'll mean that you're my spouse and everyone will know that. Right? I wonder if that was weird the first time it happens. But in today's world, it's just normal. It's just a given. That's what you do. Right? It doesn't shock us. But let me give you one that, that, that kind of would shock you if you didn't know it. Like in the Old Testament, there was a sign of commitment um, practiced by slaves, by, by servants. And so uh, when an indentured servant, so someone who agreed to work for a certain master in order to maybe pay off a debt, maybe they agreed to work for him for 10 years. And at the end of that term, they were completely free to do whatever they wanted. Right? They, can go do, they can go take a job, they can go do whatever they want, go buy land, whatever it is. But let's say at the end of the 10 years that they decide that they love their master so much that they want to they commit the rest of their lives in order to work for this master for free, that they would be part of this master's household for the rest of their lives. What they would do is they would take their master and they would go down to the courthouse and they, their master would take their ear, right, in front of everyone, their, their master would put the ear of the servant against the doorpost and he would take an awl, and if you don't know what an awl is, it's just like a giant spike, right, and he'd puncture a hole in the ear of the servant 
in front of everyone. And every time someone saw a person walking down with that hole in their ear, they would know that this person was what we call a bond servant, that they loved their master so much that they decided to dedicate their whole life to freely follow him. And the reason that this sign of commitment is important, why it matters, is that when the New Testament writers sat down to write most of the New Testament, right, when they wrote these letters to the churches, you know how they titled themselves? It wasn't merely an apostle. It wasn't merely a leader in the church. Most often they would title themselves at the very beginning of these letters by saying, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus. They said, how do I describe my love, my affection, my loyalty to Jesus, this master that I love so much that I want to freely follow him for the rest of my life? I'll call myself a bondservant. That was a sign of commitment. But the reason Jesus asks of us the sign of commitment is because he offers to us a sign of his commitment. My wife is a, is a beautiful writer, um, and one time when we were still dating, uh, I, she let me read her journal. And uh, I remember I, I saw something in there that has stuck with me for years. And so I, if I can, I would like to read a little bit of her journal to you. This is what she wrote. I just saw a man propose on one knee in the park. LOL. Isn't that beautiful writing? <laughs> She's crying. I think he is too. Just beautiful. Your knees weren't bent when you asked me to be yours. It wasn't in a pretty park or on a romantic walk or an evening stroll. It wasn't peaceful or serene. Your knee wasn't bent, but your feet were punctured. You didn't present me with a ring as a token of your love, no. You presented me with something much more valuable than a mere diamond. You offered me atonement, redemption, eternity, fastened not on a pretty gold band, but on a cross. There wasn't like music playing in the background, only unfair and harsh demands for your death and shouts and screams. In a moment, you raised your head and met my eyes. While I held my gaze, while you held my gaze, I held my breath. Will he ask me? I thought, dare I hope? What would a man like this want with a girl like me? The moment lasted an eternity. Your eyes pierced me that day. They pierced me still. You speak your proposal with words direct, eyes tender, pleading, Father, forgive her. I am undone. No photographers, the ride of violent screams fade, and suddenly it's only you and me on this whole mountain of Golgotha. My breath does not come back until the ache in my chest reminds me of its necessity. I accept. I manage to whisper, unsure it was even audible. But you heard it. You heard it. You begin to close your eyes, but before you do, I see a glimmer in them. What was that? Peace, rest, satisfaction, excitement? No, love. Immeasurable, indefinite, boundless, profuse, and reckless love. Quite different than these two in the park. Or maybe not too different at all. You know, the reason Jesus asks us for a sign of commitment is because he looks at us and he says, son, daughter, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood, a new covenant, a new commitment I'm making with you that I'll never leave you or forsake you. This is my blood 
poured out for you. He asks us for commitment because he gives us his commitment. Because he gives us his all, his body and his blood. Here's number two, if you're following along. We receive communion to honor the body of Christ. To honor the body of Christ. I want to go back to that passage in Corinthians we started with. You know, this is a very uh, dysfunctional church that Paul is writing to. And they have their share of problems. But when it comes to communion, it's probably the worst of their problems. Right? Paul says this in verse 27. So anyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are drinking, eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. You know what Paul is dealing with? It's so often we come and we receive communion in kind of this casual way, this cavalier way. And Paul is saying there is a seriousness to this table. There's a seriousness to this action you're about to take. And I think one of the most important things we could do as believers, as children of God, is that we can come and ask for forgiveness when we receive the body and the blood. Right? And I know, uh, you know, you, when you come and you, you're kind of in this hurried state, that it may just kind of all be a process, but there's something beautiful about asking for forgiveness. And, and let me clarify, it's not, it's not to say that you need to be perfect in order to receive the body and the blood. In fact, if, if you've sinned in the last 24 hours, it doesn't, you know, like negate that you should take the body and the blood. Like, it, that's not what that means. In fact, if that's the case, then it's not really a, a sin problem, it's a, it's a timing problem. No. Uh, if, if, if it was a matter of perfection, none of us would be perfect enough to receive of the Lord's table. That's not what Paul is saying. But Paul is trying to help us understand that, that he's not asking for perfection, rather honesty. Honesty. Like imagine if you were to sit down for dinner with one of your kids, right, and, and they did something and you knew what they did, but they think you don't know, right, and they're trying to cover it up. Like, they would sit down, they're trying to play it off, and it would create this kind of block, this hindrance between your relationship and theirs. But what if they came down and the first thing they do, whether they thought you knew it or not, they confessed openly what they did. And that would immediately change the scenario, right? You'd immediately be brought closer together simply because of their honesty. In that analogy, two things are true. One is that you're still, uh, you're still the child of God. You're, it, your kid is still your kid, right? That doesn't change. But the closeness, the richness of your relationship with God is dictated by your willingness to be honest. Honest. And so that's what he asks of us. But, but can I say this? It's, it, what Paul is dealing with is, is far bigger than just individual sin. He's dealing with some problems in this church. He says, in this church, um, you know, there's somebody who's, who's actually sleeping with their stepmother, and everybody in the church knows it, but nobody wants to deal with it. Like, in this church, somebody is, or there are people that are coming in and getting drunk in the middle of a service, but nobody wants to talk about that. 
Right? In this church, people are coming that, that have, are wealthy and are, have means and resources, and they're coming in and they're hogging everything and letting poor people starve in the church. And nobody wants to touch it. And Paul is saying, listen, you cannot, you cannot honor the body of Christ that is communion while simultaneously dishonoring the body of Christ that is the church. You cannot honor this body while dishonoring that one. And so let me tell you, your, your, your church isn't a building, it's a people, right? It's the people you wake up with each morning. It's the people you do life with. It's the people you're sitting around, right? It's the people that, that are in your small group. If you're going and talking behind their back, if you're hurting them actively, and then you come here and you receive this, and you're actually eating judgment on yourself. You can't honor this, uh, this body while dishonoring this one. We do it to honor the body. Here's number three. If you're following along, we receive communion to look toward a future feast. To look toward a future feast. In each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Jesus ends communion, the Lord's Supper, by saying some version of this. And I'll read it from Matthew. It says, I tell you, I will not drink again from this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, this is important because Jesus is a good Jewish rabbi, right? And what he's practicing with them is what's called the Passover. The Passover was a celebration of the children of Israel being freed uh, from slavery in Egypt. And if you don't know the story, basically the Pharaoh had kind of trapped the children of Israel. They were slaves, um, and God sent Moses and then he sends nine plagues, and none of those nine plagues work. Pharaoh's heart only becomes harder. Uh, they won't, he won't let the people go. And so God sends one final plague, and that plague is the death angel. And the death angel is going to come to all of the households in Egypt, Jew and Gentile alike, and he's going to kill the firstborn of every household. And the only way to be saved is to follow the instructions that God gives Moses. And the instructions are this, that every household, every Jewish household, is supposed to sacrifice a lamb, and they're supposed to take the blood of that lamb, and they're supposed to put it on the lentil and on the doorposts of the household. And when they do that, when the death angel comes, he will see the blood covering this household, and he will pass over, he'll move on to the next home. And in that way, the children of Israel were saved by the blood of the lamb. But I want you to know this. This is the very last Passover that Christians would celebrate. In fact, this very small Jewish group that followed Jesus that would be later called Christians, this is the last Passover. In fact, everything changes after this day. They stopped worshiping and keeping the Sabbath, right? They started worshiping on Sunday because that's the day when the Lord rose again, right? They stopped following the Passover because they no longer needed that lamb because they had the one true lamb who was sent from heaven. And they would practice communion, the Lord's table, every Sunday morning, every time they would meet. And they would share this body and this blood to celebrate what he did, to participate in his death. It changes everything. But he also reminds us this, that the next time we'll feast together, 
is not to celebrate the death of the lamb, but the marriage of the lamb. When he will be reunited with his bride, that's you and me, on that day, the last days, when we will sit at a table and we would share this meal together. And that will be the meal to end all meals, the greatest meal in all of eternity. Let me tell you this. My pastor used to say uh, two things every time uh, growing up uh, we would finish out communion. He'd say, you know, uh, there's still bread and there's still juice at this table. And he'd say, it reminds us of two things. The first is that our Lord has yet to come back. That we are still patiently waiting for him to return. But the second thing it means is this. That there is still more bread and there's still more juice because there's still more people that needs to be added to this family. I don't know what it would be like for you, but if one of my dear family members, if my sister, if I knew that this Thanksgiving I couldn't spend it with her, it would affect me. But if I found out that I could never spend a Thanksgiving with her for the rest of my life, that would affect me a lot because I love her. And what Jesus is reminding us is this, is that unless you participate in this meal, man, you can never participate in that meal. Unless your friends and family members are here with you for this, they'll never be there for that. One of my best friends ever is Pastor Clint. And I'll never forget the story he shared with me. When he was about 17 years old, he started kind of drifting away from God. And he stopped going to church. He started kind of going in the wrong crowd, doing the wrong things. And he just kind of abandoned his faith. And his stepmother, Carol, would pray for him. In fact, she would keep a picture of him in her Bible. And every time she'd open her Bible, every single day, she would see that and she would pray for him. And every week, she would invite Clint to church. And she would always say, Clint, I'm saving you a seat. Would you come to church? And Clint will always say no. And she wasn't making that up. Every Sunday she would get to church and she would save a seat right next to her. And when people would come and try to sit in that seat, she'd say, no, that, that seat's for Clint. She did that for three years. Every week praying. Every week inviting. Every week saving a seat. Until one day, three years later, God got a hold of Clint's heart. And on a Sunday morning, he walked into church. And guess where he sat? And that seat she had been saving for three years. I want you to look around. Across all locations, I want you to look around at the seats next to you. No, I'm for being for real. Look right now. Look around. Is there an open seat near you? You know what that means? That there's still more to be added to this family. There's still more to be added to this family. And I'm not saying that because we need to grow our church or anything like that. I'm saying that because I want to see some friends and some family at that final meal. And unless they're a part of this one, they can never be a part of that one. Maybe you're here today and you have no idea where you stand with God. Maybe you have no idea if you'll make it to that last meal. Let me tell you this. He is offering a new commitment to you, a new covenant one that's sealed with his body and his blood. 
and he's offering you new life. So cross this room at all locations, whether you're watching this online or hearing on a podcast, here's what I'd love for you to do. Just want you to bow your heads. And if you're saying, God, I want to follow you. I want to commit to you. I want to lead you in a prayer. And I'm going to ask everyone in this room to pray this prayer with me. Say, dear Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for letting your body be broken and your blood poured out. Thank you for giving me new life. Help me to experience it in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.